This episode was brought to you by ReadyMag. ReadyMag is a design tool for creating outstanding websites without coding, from quick landing pages to complex editorials. With advanced animations, more than 5,000 free fonts, plus teamwork and analytics, ReadyMag empowers both independent creatives and companies to meet their goals for online representation. For more information, visit ReadyMag.com, where you'll find inspiring examples of web projects made by ReadyMag users. And I also think because it was satirical and we were making fun of people, we wanted it to stick. We didn't want it to be, oh, yeah, that was a funny joke about this person. Oh, that was a funny nickname for this person or whatever. We wanted to have an impact. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm George Gendron. I'm Patrick Mitchell. We've always had a thing for magazine launches. They're filled with drama and melodrama, people behaving with passion and conviction, and people misbehaving. Anything to get that first issue onto the stands and into the hands of readers. Some new ventures seem to sneak in the back door. Who saw Wired or Fast Company coming? Others are to the manner born and from the most elite print parents. But even with that pedigree, they never gain traction, never display the scrappiness and experimentation that we've come to expect from anything new. You know who you are. But then, one day, along comes the greatest startup in the history of magazine startups. A magazine that dares to mercilessly and humorously vilify high society. The one that big-time journalists pretend to ignore but were first to the newsstand each month to grab their copy. The one that created packaging conceits separated at birth, private lives of public enemies, Blurbomat, and Naked City, plus the adorable nicknames like Short-Fingered Vulgarian that persist to this day. That's right, we're talking about Spy. And in this episode, we'll meet Kurt Anderson, who, along with Graydon Carter and Tom Phillips, founded what became an instantaneous cultural phenomenon. Spy Magazine. The axis of the publishing world tilted when it hit the stands. Spy was the most influential magazine of the 1980s, the author Dave Eggers wrote. It definitely changed the whole tone of magazine journalism. It was cruel, brilliant, beautifully written, and perfectly designed, and feared by all. There had never been anything like Spy before. Nothing since has come close. So in preparation for this episode with Kurt Anderson, you and I both spent a lot of quality time with this amazing book, Spy the Funny Years, which we will link to on our website. It was written by Kurt and his co-founder, Graydon Carter, along with George Kalajarakis, one of the original spy writers. The book is a complete history of spy, and after reading it again, I was reminded about what an influential role the magazine played in the way I thought about my work. And it wasn't just me. It literally influenced everybody in the magazine yeah, business. Absolutely. Spy changed the way magazines look and feel in a way that is just as important as how the new journalism affected magazine writing oh, yeah. and the way the internet affected print magazines. It's such a great book and I can't recommend it enough. One of the funniest things in a book filled with funny things was this memo from then owner Jean Pagosi, who I think was known as Johnny. The memo was faxed to the art director, the late B.W. Honeycutt, who had succeeded the great Alex Isley and the great Stephen Doyle. And it goes like this. June 17th, 1991, by fax, Mr. B.W. Honeycutt, spy. 
Dear BW, I just got the July-August cover shot and I don't like it. As I faxed you some days ago, Sharon Stone's face is too small compared to the Spy logo. Now that I see the real cover, I also discover with horror that her eye makeup is too dark, her lips are not in a good position, that her lipstick is horrible, that there is no light on her breasts, and that her hips look very wide. This photo is absolutely not sexy. It simply is not a good photo of Sharon Stone, who is a very pretty and sexy girl. From now on, I want to be involved from the beginning, and I want to approve all covers. I hope this is clear. Please inform Kurt and Graydon. Have a very good week. Jean. And then it's got this rubber stamp at the bottom that says, Dictated but not read by Jean Pagrosi. <laughs> this got me thinking. <laughs> I've been out of the corporate structure for so long. But we've all gotten memos like this, and it's funny that the owner was channeling his anger through the art director and not to the founding editors. Maybe it's because they wouldn't listen. Yeah. What's your favorite instance of executive interference? I had the same response to that same page, and I had flashbacks to my uh, three-year relationship, turbulent relationship with D. Herbert Lipsom, who was the owner of Boston Magazine. I had been at New York Magazine, and he offered me the job basically as the editor-in-chief. So I was I came up to Boston and was the editor-in-chief of uh, that magazine for three years, 1975 through 78, I guess. And it had never really been designed. It was a Chamber of Commerce magazine for all practical purposes. So I hired the brilliant designer, Ron Campisi from The Real Paper. And man, we started, we started to go head to head with Herb about covers immediately because, as you well know, a veteran of Boston Magazine yourself, man, did he love semi-clad women on that cover. I mean, month after month after month. And so we got to a point where I would send Herb three covers with a little note saying, we're trying to figure out which one, Herb, and um, I'm anxious to hear you weigh in. And of course, one of them was a semi-clad woman. And I would get a call from Herb, and he would always say, yeah, George, go with number one. Number one is great. I love it. And of course, we would go with number three. <laughs> And then he would come to town. He lived in Philadelphia where he owned Philadelphia Magazine. He would come to town and he and I would have these meetings that would start in my office, but would eventually end up with me wandering around the newsroom and him following me screaming at the top of his lungs that I just didn't understand his prerogative as an owner. So we finally made a deal that we would only meet across the street at the Ritz-Carlton for breakfast. That way we would shield the staff from these shouting matches. Yeah, that's why everybody wears headphones now. <laughs> My wife keeps a file of every nasty corporate memo that I've ever gotten, but I was thinking of a different type of executive interference. I think it was the first time Fast Company was at the National Magazine Awards, which were held at the Waldorf Astoria, that very impressive event hall they had in New York. We were a finalist for the Design Award, but since we were a new magazine, our table was up in the balcony. All the established magazines had tables on the floor in front of the stage. Yeah. And so at the time, we were owned by Mort Zuckerman, the noted real estate billionaire. The magazines he owned, U.S. News and World Report, The Atlantic and Fast Company, were kind of a vanity project for him. He also owned the New York Daily News, which I read he recently sold for $1. Yeah. Anyway, Fast Company was his new toy, and he had brought in Sir Harold Evans, a well-known British journalist, but who's better known here for being the creator of Condé Nast Traveler and for also being the husband of Tina Brown. 
Sir Harold had been brought in to be Zuckerman's chief poobah of magazines. <laughs> anyway, back at the Waldorf, the awards were being given out. And as our category was coming up, you know, our team was all sitting at a big table facing the stage. And uh, Sir Harold appears out of nowhere and approaches the table. None of us had ever met him. So he said his hellos to the editors and then kind of drifted over my way. I was sitting with my design team and he says, excuse me to one of them. And what he really meant was, please vacate that chair. It turned out that he wanted to be sitting next to me when we won the award. So after a minute of very awkward small talk, our category came up and they called out the winner. And it was Esquire or Entertainment Weekly. I don't remember. So you know your heart sinks and, and then you quickly recover. And I, I turned to say, oh, well, to Sir Harold. But he was gone. Vanished. <laughs> That was, well, that was another area of kind of turf battles all the time, I think, often between owners and editors-in-chief and chief designers, and that was magazine awards. My response to the story you told, Pat, is that um, I wish there were more times when Herb wasn't there. <laughs> when you turned around and he was gone? If only. Those were the days. All right. Let's meet Kurt Anderson. Let's do it. So let me just start by jumping in. What was the very first conversation you had with Graydon Carter about a new magazine? When was that? It was probably 1984. It's my best guess. You know, at uh, we'd, we'd become friends. I, I'd arrived at Time Magazine three years earlier, and we'd become very good friends. And uh, it may have been earlier than that, but I, I distinctly remember some lunches in 1984 where we were talking about this unnamed new magazine that we would love to have. It didn't begin as a conversation of, oh, let's start a magazine. It began as, wow, we, we loved magazines when we were young. What do we miss? What, what, what isn't there now that could be? Say more about that. What was, from your point of view and Graydon's, what was the state of the magazine industry at that point? Well, we were still young enough to like be dissatisfied and want to cause trouble, but had been around enough at that point. You know, I was 30 and he was old. He was 35. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we felt it was everything was safe and kind of fat and happy and unambitious. And, you know, that basically a kind of, well, I remember in, in our in our prospectus that we then once it became like, yeah, let's see if we can do this and started writing, you know, writing it up. We called it a, one of the terms we used was illiterate sensationalism. We thought that, you know, the, it was possible to be, well, our, our the, the motto we came up with was smart, fun, funny, fearless. And so we thought it was possible to be smart and thoughtful, but like, no holds barred and shocking and in a, in a kind of non-ideological way. Um, we thought, we thought that, you know, again, we'd been around long enough and hanging around with reporters and journalists long enough that we realized you hear all the great stories at the bar and never see them in print effectively. And we thought like, well, why, why, why can't we do, why can't we put them in print? And uh, so that's what, and, and we, we also, there was a foot, you know, a, a kind of, humorous, ironic, comedic zeitgeist change. Uh, David Letterman's show uh, was part of that. The, you know, Maureen Dowd as a reporter was part of that. There are other things happening. And, and we were part of that wave, I suppose, in imagining this magazine that would be both satirical, but not in any sense a humor magazine, um, different than Private Eye in Britain, which was a kind of predecessor, but very different than what we ended up doing. So 
I mean, the old Esquire had been very important to both of us. The National Lampoon back in the day, again, a pure humor magazine, not journalistic at all, but that that had you know shaped us, and certainly Mad Magazine when we were children. But but bits of Harper's and again the old days, these magazines of the of the seventies, really sixties and seventies, when we were young, had uh, made us fall in love with magazines, and that didn't seem to be being done much. I mean, you know, Esquire had its annual Dubious Achievements Awards, you know, which was creditable and, and okay, but once a year, you know, a, a big piece once a year. So we felt there was there was room to move. What's your theory, looking back, on why magazines were as, well, I'll use the word bland, you know? I, mean, I think at one point you guys said in the book about Spy, one of you was quoted as saying something about the fact that they had lost their edge. They didn't really have a personality. Do you have a theory? Was that a response to or a reflection of the culture at large, or was that more to do with the life cycle of individual magazines? Both, I would say, and also generational. I, I think there was something about the baby boom generation when they were still young and, and not yet old, you know, but coming of age, right? I mean, as I say, I was 30, Greg was 35. The, the, the kind of anti-establishment, fuck you-ness of our generational sensibility had not really made its way into magazines. And the also, and this is more not even generational or the spirit of the time so much as, you know, in Great Britain, I mean, there's lots of things wrong with British journalism and always has been, but there was an ability to kick people in the shins that was lacking in the United States. You know, so, so that as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, magazines were long in the tooth and old. And, but on the other hand, in retrospect, I often think that, among other things, Spy was representative of or embodied a kind of late magazine age thing. Now, we, did, did, we didn't know it was late in the magazine age in 1986 because we didn't know it was about to happen. But in a certain way, it was this kind of flourishing of magazines late in the magazine century, if you will. and. I know it's true of us, and I think it was true of all these other little magazines that started in New York around the same time, and Seven Days and all these other things. There was suddenly, starting in 1982, when you know New York was back and booming, and there was money sloshing around because of the bull market. There was a lot of money to, for you know, kind of angel investors to throw around to enterprises like ours. So that I think permitted these uppity young people to try to do it in a different way than it was being done by the big timing Condé Nast entities. But I guess back to your question, I mean, yes, these big dominant magazine companies like Time Inc. and Condé Nast were dominant and by their nature, right, by their corporate nature, weren't going to do a lot of risky things. What were you and Graydon both doing at the time? Were you both at Time Magazine? I was still at Time Magazine. He, by that time, had gone to become an editor of a, a startup called TV Cable Week, uh, which didn't last. Oh my God! Long. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, which was meant to be. It was a Time Inc. magazine, meant to be the kind of TV guide of the new cable era, and it was, you know, a big failure. And uh, so he was involved in that startup. You know, I mean, did his job, but was really focused on 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 Spy. And we, as we've talked about from the beginning, and we used the infrastructure of Time Inc., the library, the as used to be called back then in the 19th century, Watts lines for free long distance. And, <laughs> and uh, all these, you know, we, we used the means at our disposal to, to do our little startup in our offices at Time Inc. 
We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. So at some point, this transforms from a conversation about the magazine you'd both love to read to one that, well, maybe you guys were going to launch this. Yeah. And I've been told that you started swapping notes about the magazine. We did. We didn't. Uh, the, the, what made us start to do that and take it more seriously than just, you know, the sixth lunch where we were talking about this larkish thing that we would want. Um, my wife, who was then working at... Sesame Street. Yes, she was, and or maybe had just w- went to CBS. Anyway, she was working, and and one of her friends from college was this guy Tom Phillips, whom we'd never met, and I knew, no, maybe I met him, but I didn't know him well. She said, you know, you guys need a third person. You guys need a business partner. Let me introduce you to Tom. Maybe you'll like him. Maybe he'll be into it. And he was, and he became our our third partner. And had beyond his business chops, you know, he w- worked on Wall Street and had you know had an MBA. Um, he having an outsider pushing us to like, hey, get serious, write ideas, you know, start memorializing this and figuring it out. And that's really what started making it real, you know. You know, what's interesting about that is um, in the industry, when you hear the title publisher, it connotes, well, he's he's the ad sales guy. He runs the ad team. Yeah. And yet almost every single startup needs somebody who has this kind of infinite capacity to get shit done. Yeah. And to get other people to get stuff done. Yes. And it seems as if that was the key role he played for you guys. It was a very key role. And and again, it was it add, it made for a complementarity of yes, we were two buddies and pals and the creative whatevers to have this other person who could do the stuff and set up the meetings and raise the money and all that and who loved who who liked us and would completely shared the mission of the thing. He wasn't in it cuz it was a job. Or, you know, he was in it. It was a, it was a, we created a little cult, right? It was, it was a mission oriented operation. And then, and he wasn't really the guy who sold ads that much. He was everything else. As we were starting, we realized, wow, we need somebody to sell ads. He, he, we, he hired my wife, Ann Kramer, to be the ad director, marketing director. And, uh, and she, in, in that sense, along with our early editors, became a kind of co co founder. When it comes to selling, where are you on the spectrum? A lot of creatives just, they don't like to sell. They don't mind going into an environment with a client or an agency where they're going to talk about the market or the culture at large. But man, they, we don't like asking for the business. We don't like closing a deal, God forbid. No, we, 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 we I mean, again, my wife was the person, so I, we were able to work it out pretty well. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I remember once, actually, we were at We'd gone out to St. Louis to sell Anheuser Busch, and and we didn't we didn't announce that we were married. You know, we have different names, and and at the end, the guy said or somebody said, "Wow, I've never seen an editor and a ad director get along so well and be in such sync." And at that point, <laughs> at that point, we admitted it. But I, you know, I didn't go out and sell. I I I was happy to be a kind of, you know, show up and be interested in this business or whatever at the appropriate time, a kind of pre-closing appearance, you know, I was totally happy to be used that way. And so, so was Graydon for that matter. And, and uh, I mean, and, and of course, raising money was, you know, a series of the first important series of selling the thing. Right. So, of course. You know, where'd the name come from? It was Graydon's idea and it was from the play and film 
Philadelphia story in which uh, Jimmy Stewart works for Spy Magazine. And, uh, and you know, uh, Graydon always wanted to live in the 1930s and 40s. And that was another way we could, <laughs> we could do it. And uh, um, uh, it, that's where it came from. And it was, fent- and, you know, it worked out great. And, and among other things, allowed to have it be a gigantic logo on the cover. And, and uh, yeah, no, that was entirely his idea. It broadcasts a certain kind of attitude that the title TV Cable Week just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Although, unfortunately, it may, you know, there there were always people who thought like, so it's it's about espionage or it's about intelligence? No. That's okay. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and occasionally it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. That's absolutely true. It's interesting that um, in reading the excerpts in, what was it, The Funny Years? Yeah. In the book about Spy, reading the excerpts that I think are all Graydon's and the notes he was sending to you, you guys got to a certain point where it seemed as if the conversation about this new magazine was all about style, attitude, intelligence, sensibility. Sure. On top of a commitment to rigorous reporting and research. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. So where did that come from? Where did which come from? This unbelievable, almost maniacal <laughs> yes. focus on reporting. The reason I ask, here's why it's of interest to me in particular. I was at New York Magazine in the early 70s, and I was really struck as I moved through my career how influential the new journalism, some of which was Esquire, The Trib. And New York. And New York. How influential it was among young journalists who who somehow misinterpreted it and didn't understand that the foundation of this was a kind of relentless reporting and attention to observational detail. I mean, it was just, it was extraordinary. Yes. And when I think about that, the other magazine that I think about was Spy. Oh, that's nice. Well, no, I mean, one of, again, I mean, I I mentioned the magazines I mentioned, but the new journalists, I mean, uh, Nora Ephron, you know, uh, Joan Didion, for that matter, Tom Wolfe, Jay Talese, all of them obviously were reporters first who also had these amazing sensibilities and, and prose styles, right? So yes, in absolutely, 100%. And you, in both magazines, you began to realize quickly, those details matter. They broadcast something about the characters and the stories. Yes. And I also think because it was satirical, right? And we were making fun of people. We, we didn't, we wanted it to stick. We didn't, Wanted to be, oh, yeah, that was a funny joke about this person. Oh, that was a funny nickname for this person or whatever. We wanted to have an impact, you know, and um, and you only do that by, you know, giving new information. Yes, in a new way. And yes, stylishly. And God knows our I think our art direction was key to the whole operation in a big way. But yeah, there, there it is reporting driven. And, and again, that was what was new. I mean, people were familiar with humor and satire, National Lampoon and so forth. But th- that combination was rarer, although one of our predecessors that nobody realized, certainly by then, but we had because we'd look back at old magazines, The New Yorker back in its beginnings. Yeah. And it's not right at the beginning, but like Wolcott Gibbs in the 30s and stuff. Those were spy stories, essentially, you know, uh, that they were doing. Yeah, that's a good point. You were talking earlier about the zeitgeist. And um, I guess what interests me about the angel money that you raised was that it came from very conservative sources. The heirs of Merrill Lynch, Coca-Cola, Conagra. I mean, one of the big Wall Street. You've Wall done Street. your research. Yes. I yeah. have done my yeah, research. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, conservative, not in that they are political conservatives. Let's no, no, clear. no. I didn't mean it that way. No. I know. No, but like, no, so much of it was exact. Yeah. was was, you know, rich people we happen to know and who to whom 50,000 was, was not a huge deal, especially four years into this new bull market, you know? So, yeah, it they were 
mostly friends of ours, of Tom's and mine, especially, and, and uh, you know, a little bit from my parents as well. And, and uh, a bit, but again, a little bit, I mean, you know, and they're, they're not rich people at all. So, but yes, yes. Conservative in the sense of one's parents in Nebraska. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's what I was really getting at. But it also says something about kind of maybe the last days of magazines having that kind of cachet. For sure. It, and, and I think in a way, again, by sheer fortuitous chance, we lucked into doing this at a moment of in some ways maximum glamminess of magazines as a thing. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and uh, you know, Vanity Fair had been revived slash started, you know, in 1982, I think. So, yeah, it was uh, magazines were a glamour in some ways the most glamorous part of the glamorous New York media industry at that at that moment. Yeah. Having run uh, Inc. magazine for decades, I have to ask the question, what did you guys take around with you when you were pitching investors? Do you have a prospectus, business plan? Do you have a prototype? Uh, we we had all those things. Not not a. I mean, a, the the prototype was was you know boards like I don't know six boards of here's how it'll look, here's what the covers will look like. But yeah, a prospectus and somewhere in some archive that's still I still have that and uh, and a, yeah, we had a business plan as well. And like all business plans, it was like you know uh, fiction. But plausible fiction. Um, <laughs> um, Still have a copy of it? I, I, of the business plan, I don't think so. Tom Phillips probably does, but I do not. Boy, I'd love to take a look at that. I love looking at all business plans. Yeah, I, again, it wasn't crazy. And, and, we, and we, we had modest, the business as conceived and in the business plan and was modest. It was, you know, the, the, our initial subtitle was Spy, The New York Monthly. We weren't trying to be a national magazine. It was just, ah, it's our little, you know, our little... Version. I mean, we really saw in in our direct mail. We sent out direct mail. I guess they maybe they're still direct mail, but we 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 we, <laughs> we, we sent out you know direct mail, junk mail, and tried to make it funny and and compared ourselves on this little card to New York and the New Yorker and the New York Times. So we thought of ourselves as you know the little scruffy commandos in New York. But my real point is that it, we didn't think, oh, we'll have we'll be a national magazine and sell a million copies. We thought, no, we'll be a New York Magazine, and I think, I, I don't know what we projected uh, as a circulation, but I, I'm sure we exceeded it. I mean, I know what our circulation was at the top, and I'm sure we didn't say it. we'll have 300,000 circulation in three years, and we did. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Yeah. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. So you guys raise some money, and then you go out and you rent an office. Yeah. And appropriately enough, the puck building. Yeah. We did. Well, you know, it's funny, even before we were even, when we were just still talking about it and dreaming about it and Green and I were having lunch, we would have lunch in Times Square and play Asteroids, the video game Asteroids in one of these you know, playlands uh, after lunch. And then we walked back to Time Inc. I literally remember looking up, we were looking up at buildings and we looked up at one old building and one of us said, probably Greg, and said, you know, that's the kind of place where we, we could have these offices for this magazine. It'll be like our clubhouse and, uh, it, you know, and I'm not even sure we knew about the puck building at that point, but as soon as we discovered it, which had recently been renovated, right? And, right. And, 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 and there weren't many tenants yet, of course. It was the home of this famous satirical magazine a century earlier. And, but as soon as we saw that building, and it was in Soho, but a kind of grungy edge of Soho, and it was a beautiful little building, and the, it was just, 
kismet. We had to be there and it was cheap. It was super cheap. Not anymore. Well, no, not <laughs> now that Jared Kushner owns it. No, not anymore. Although recently I discovered, and I didn't realize it then that Jared Kushner's father was already an investor in it when we were there, which adds to the something, <laughs> the, the uh, my retroactive amazement of my various connections with Donald Trump and his family. Yeah, boy, that's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that. I thought the Kushners were a relatively recent ownership Me too. Group. Me too. But no, I mean, they weren't the owners then, but they were part of a group that I think had just right around that time. We we certainly occupied the Puck Building when the future inmate, uh, Mr. Kushner, was, uh, was, <laughs> was part of the investor group who owned it. Boy, it just can't kick the habit, can you, Kurt? No. <laughs> You know, it might interest you to know, you and your wife, that um, there's a there's a nice, tidy little penthouse for sale on one of the top floors of the Puck Building for a mere forty two million. If you're feeling nostalgic, well, you know, it's funny when 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 uh, they opened that, and and Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were were the doyens of that whole operation. And I know they had that apartment. I believe I don't know if it's their apartment, but you know, Spy was I believe on the eighth floor, and it was nine floors, so. I always wonder, are they living in my office now? Um, but yes, indeed, I'm aware of that of that availability. Did you guys go into the office every day? Oh, yeah. No, we worked remotely. Yes, of course we went, went to the office every day. <laughs> no, I was just curious about work habits back then, oh, right? We were, especially, especially for our younger listeners here. <laughs> no, we were. It, we, it was the hardest job. I mean, you know, time had, had its hardness, you know, two nights a week. Too, but man, no, we worked long, hard hours there. You know, absolutely. Um, although, you know, it's interesting, and I, and I remember I felt like I was working every waking hour, but we didn't go into the office much on weekends. But yes, we worked hard. We went to the office. You know, showed up at whatever we showed up at. You know, eight or nine, and and we're there till after dark. Was it what we would call a newsroomish environment? It was a yes. It was a, well open plan, which we never called it that. But it was it was yeah. It was just a big loft with with some you know kind of cool partitions that we that our architect friends had put up and uh, uh, yeah. It was it was just this you know whatever it was three thousand square feet with an increasing number of people just running around screaming at each other in 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 sight of each other all the time. It was great. Yeah, that, and now we're getting to something that really interests me, which is the relationship between spaces and how people end up working. Yeah. I mean, I got so just hooked on the newsroom at New York Magazine, particularly in the old in 32nd Street, uh, which eventually became the Pushbin building. But uh, man, there was just something about that kind of energy and buzz when you could have all these conversations and you could sit and as a young kid, for me, I had been the mailboy there. And when I moved up to the newsroom, I felt like, man, I was, I, I could just sit and listen every day and kind of- A hundred percent. No, what a way and to learn. Totally. And it's funny that you mentioned New York Magazine, because when I went on to New York Magazine after Spy at a, at a different location on 41st Street, I guess it was. Yeah, by the Daily News. Yeah, exactly. And there was this, the editor's office, which I occupied, it was this big, you know, closed off, like wood panel thing. I, I kind of hated that, you know, and I and I at one point proposed, like, can't we just tear this down, this wall down here? But I, I totally agree the the, the uh, you know, it's again, I don't want to be the old folk. Back, and back then it was great because of this. But but the fact that, you know, nobody wore headphones or earphones and they actually taught, you know, it wasn't all these people, all these Dilberts in their in their cubicles just typing away alone. 
there was a communality by the nature of not having, I mean, we had computers and that was avant-garde in 1986. Boy, was but, it ever. But yeah, but uh, it wasn't, it was, it was a, it was a lively office culture, as you say, newsroomy in which, in which everybody sort of experienced together all the time. It was great. One of the other things I loved about it was at least the illusion, and it might have been an illusion for a young kid, that, man, it was hard to keep a secret in your newsroom. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knew everything. It was hard to keep a secret. The other thing that, I don't know, you might bring this up, but I'm, I just occurred to me in terms of not only did we have serious work ethic happening there, but, you know, for a magazine that was mean, and like, I remember when the Wall Street Journal of all places accused us of being too mean, but... It was the opposite, mostly, in, in the office. It was a very collegial, you know, we happy band of sisters and brothers thing, which was, I think, an important part of this, you know, scary operation we were, uh, we were doing. I'm really curious, um, where did story ideas come from? You know, all the usual places, which is everywhere, and everybody hears everything. But we had, we had you know, regular, I don't even know how often, frequent editorial meetings we, we you know, often with lunch and we would just gather around and people bring in sandwiches and and the whole 15 person editorial staff would uh gather around a table and say oh, i have this idea or i have this you know i mean it was just it was they were such magnificent wonderful exciting meetings and and you know yes great and i uh, were in charge but it was a pretty democratic you know jazz like improvisational thing it was it was it was wonderful. And again, having had a subsequent life of going to meetings that weren't so fun or exciting or jazz-like, uh, it was one of those things that in retrospect, I certainly realized, man, I, I didn't know quite how good I had it. But yeah, so they were editorial meetings and they were, and, and that's once we were doing this thing and once people understood what it was we were doing, which they didn't at first. And and one of the reasons, this, I'm sorry, I'm digressing to this, but no, not at all. one of the reasons we we did so much editing from the beginning. It was a highly edited magazine. It was not because we wanted to piss on everything or get every, get our hands on everything, but because what we were doing was kind of a new thing. That people didn't that we couldn't point to, oh, it's like this. Do it like this. We had to ha we had to be around for six months or so before even writers, let alone everybody else, could say, Oh, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. So that that's what I mean, in a way, when you said it, it was about sensibility and style and all that, and we certainly had a house style or a set of house styles for sure, but it didn't begin, it was, we had a vision, and then it took a while for the rest of the world and our staff and outside writers to sort of come along. One thing that was absolutely remarkable for me as a reader was that there was more going on per square inch on a page of Spy than anything I had ever seen before, ever. And so it, as a reader, it was it was literally a miracle, a conceptual miracle. On the other hand, I kept thinking, how in God's name do you guys do this without just burning out? Well, I take that as a great compliment. And many of my friends at magazines at the time were was struck as you were by the ob especially if you do that for a living you are aware of how much of the, of the person hours per square inch you know uh, that went into this and uh, you know we didn't have any bosses right we we were working for ourselves doing this scary fun thing that that pretty soon was getting a lot of attention and enthusiasm among readers and everything else so it was you know we we had invented this thing that took a lot of work to do as we wanted to do it and took the art directors a lot of work to do as they wanted, you know, 
and the fact checkers and everybody. So it it was a labor intensive uh, labor of love. I was reminded of that when recently I was went back and reread the uh, the funny years because that book did something to capture that same sense of layer after layer after layer of yeah. kind of editorial conception. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, and, and the, that kind of highly layered, fussed over, even mannerist version of a magazine that we did owed some, you know, owed something to our childhoods as mad magazine readers, right? You know, I mean, there was yeah, about all right. those little, you know, marginalia of that, you know, together with, with, you know, having both kind of come of age to some degree at, at, at Time Magazine and all the, the, you know, infographics and charts and stuff and sort of doing that, but subverting it and doing it without a staff of, you know, 500, <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll be right back. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. So eventually you guys, not I shouldn't say eventually, pre-launch, you hire um, Stephen Doyle, Drentel Doyle, to design the magazine. Had you and Graydon or you or Graydon highly visualized the magazine before Stephen came along? Graydon certainly had a notion that it should be, that it should have a classical and traditional look. Because again, it was, how did magazines look in 1940? Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and certainly the, the logo in a certain way bears bore that out, bears that out. But no, the the uh, it wasn't as though then Stephen Doyle just showed us, no, it's this. You know, as one does when you're an editor working with a very skilled and talented art director, you iteratively go back and have conversations about what there should be. And, and we realized that we, we wanted it to be dense and, uh, and, and, and a little strange and a little singular. And but because we we did have a certain amount of because it was this weird satirical edgy thing, right? We didn't want it necessarily to be, you know, we we liked the idea of it having a certain amount of traditionalism and rigor in various ways. Uh, you know, in the end, the art direction was not traditional by any means. Although, you know, certain there were there are these you know fl- drop cap flourishes and there there are bits of traditionalism within this. Uh, sweet, generous madhouse of possibilities that Stephen and, and his, his successor, uh, Alex Isley, invented. I still find it hard to explain when I'm talking to a journalism class the impact that you guys had on the look of magazines. In the late 90s, I hired Drentel Doyle to redesign Inc. magazine. And when I went down to their studio and saw the first round of roughs, I swore and and Stephen can attest to this, that I could still see vestiges of spy and they looked as fresh then as they had a decade earlier. Well, it, it did have an impact and, and which was again, no no credit to us except that we, we made it a good magazine, but he, uh, it was amazing to me. Yes, 10, 20 years later, even today, you know, when I see these funny charts with, you know, silhouette, silhouetted heads decorating them, I go, well, we invented that. You know, uh, and, you know, and and it did, and 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 in a weird way, I, I jokingly say, well, we invented the internet or anticipated the internet. And we, there's some anticipation in some of the things we did. These massive connect the dot charts and 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 infographics. You know, there was there was because the internet came along while we were doing it. Uh, 
or right after we stopped doing it, there was a certain amount of like, wow, we, we, we want some way to connect all these disparate things and have it delivered with this satiric sensibility. Well, I mean, the internet, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, so as it turned out, there was there was some kind of proto-internet-y quality to much of the of the graphic design, but just also just using old photos that, you know, because they're dated and the models look funny because they're from the 60s or something. Uh, that, that again, that was just brilliant art direction of, of that Stephen and and again his his other and Alex and others put in there. But um, yeah, it again that helped a lot too, right? It, I mean, the fact if if it just been if it looked like the Atlantic or Harper's or the New Yorker, but was the same thing, we wouldn't have had nearly. The- no, I agree with that completely. They both happen to be alums of M and Company. Yes, Tibor Kalman's firm, and I'm curious. Was that part of what attracted you to those guys? I mean, people forget just how sexy M and Company was back then. I don't think there's anything comparable right now. Yeah, well, I mean, they're you know, uh, in different ways along the way. Stefan Sagmeister has been, you know, uh, well, that's true. Yeah, but but no, Tibor was in M and Company were an amazing thing during his efflorescence. It, it was extraordinary. You know, no, we were not that, frankly. You know, we were not that deep into the graphic design world yet. So we, we weren't part of the, you know, didn't know Tibor. We're not part of the Emin Company uh, cult yet. But certainly as soon as we hired Stephen and, and Drentel Doyle and then saw, oh, man, here, here's a guy in the case of Tibor, independently of us, you know, we're, we're working, we're in adjacent lanes, you know, in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 the use of vernacular bits and pieces, and and the combination of the extreme freshness and and mischievousness and all of it. Yeah, definitely. And then I became, fortunately, before he died in the '90s, he, he became one of my best friends. It's interesting that when you think about all the talk about human-centered design these days, it puts how far ahead of his time Tibor was, not just in terms of his design style and his antics, but his values. Yes, totally. And and did it. You know, he could be serious and he could be earnest and all that, but doing it in a kind of fun way, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and, and kind of, you know, misbehaving in a, in, a, in a serious way. I mean, he wasn't a yippie, you know, right? He wasn't just like trying to tear it down for no good reason. He combined kind of virtuous intent with a sense of fun and glee, you know? Not unlike spy well exactly well which is yeah why we got well once we finally you know met and got along and you know he we talked about starting magazines actually in the late 90s we had a couple of different ideas for magazines we wanted to start and you guys were both eventually associated with uh colors well he's he created it and i came yeah. in near the end to do it for a year and a half but yeah this is going to sound like a random question but i have to ask it I spent most of my professional life kind of exploring and documenting entrepreneurship and creativity. And um, it's always struck me that many of the most original, edgy, fresh ideas emerge from environments characterized by resource scarcity. When you don't have capital, you have to invent. You have to be resourceful. You have to substitute ingenuity for financial capital. Was that true at SPY? Yes, absolutely. And I agree with you both in theory and in my experience of doing SPY. But we didn't have nothing, right? We, it wasn't a zine, right? We had a million and a half dollars. And then once at a crucial time when, when we were successful, but like didn't have enough money to just go on, we got another million and a half. And so, you know, I mean, that, so three million in 1986, 87 is, as I say, what, eight, nine, 
10 million maybe. Well, you know, that's a lot of money um, that we husbanded a lot. But yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that there, what I think is not that like the less money, the better, depending on what you're trying to do, but there is some optimal amount where, 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 you know, it wasn't Condé Nast portfolio, which I, it was a fine magazine, but I'm saying <laughs> not, not a magazine where having all the money in the world necessarily helped it. Do you know? Yeah. Well, at a certain point, too much money does become kind of toxic. Yes. Yes, indeed. No, and and we had more, and, and, and then we were making money, right? We were breaking even. So we had, like, at a certain point, you know, I don't know, 88, 89, like, like wow, we have enough money. We can we can do this. I mean, for instance, I mean, we spent, I don't, I don't even, I would like to go back and look how much we spent on these incredibly expensive, mind-blowing computer, you know, essentially, what you can now do on Photoshop, like, you can I my top my you know little kids can we spent thousands of dollars to have a have a cover of Ted Kennedy having water thrown on him or whatever it was and so we we picked our places to spend a lot of money right it yeah. wasn't on we didn't pay writers very much and uh, we didn't pay ourselves and our staff that much and but like whoa if we can we can we can do this amazingly realistic looking fake obviously fake photo cover then yeah let's spend three thousand dollars or whatever it took but it was like literally a mainframe computer that was required to do these things we did (laughs) on a more mundane level i always used to wonder how much did it cost you guys to put together the chart that documented every caa client in hollywood well it wasn't so much that wasn't so much money as sheer sweat and blood and tears uh yeah that was and for such a and and that's all it was right it was just this this incredibly powerful, all powerful Hollywood agency that was suddenly the force in Hollywood kept there was no list of of who they represented. So we thought, well, I'd like to see that. People would like to see that. So that was just a matter of just like a gazillion hours of very poorly paid, you know, researchers uh, just digging up in every way possible who who were the actors and writers and directors they represented. And then we just published the name. That's all it was. It was just publishing the names on two or three pages. And that single thing, I think as much or more than any of the regular monthly coverage, news store, you know, column exposés we did of CAA, uh, they were a real focus of ours. That completely freaked Mike Ovitz, who ran it, and them out. I mean, what? This is, this is the secret we've been able to keep. And this little... Pipsqueak magazine has exposed it. I know. You know, it was it, and that again, that really set them off. And uh, and what a pleasure that was for us to get such a rise out of you know these big powerful grownups. You know, with a chart, a list. Well, of course, charts. I know. I mean, and, and no, and then the, I, you know, and I still love. I loved maps as a little kid, and I loved charts, and I did then, and I still do. But yes, indeed. But it also displays a certain kind of editorial restraint. I could imagine other publications building an entire special issue around that. The well, Hollywood I, issue. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So, no, that's that's true that we, we yes. We, well, and again, in that sense, the, 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 the person hours per square inch may have been, to your point, the, the maximum. I mean, uh, I don't think of it as expensive, but of course, in some sense, it was. It was, yeah. Expensive, yeah. So, We've got to talk for a second about you and Graydon, because in a way you defied all the odds that, that, you know, about the conventional wisdom, which is you can't have co-editors, you can't have co-CEOs, you can't have co-directors, 
it never, ever works. I know venture guys who basically say for them, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. Two guys come in and they can't answer the question, who's accountable? Who's in charge here? And you did it. I loved the quote. I think it was Graydon's who said, um, what was it here? Between the two of us, we make one great editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it is. Again, in retrospect, it, it is amazing because, as you say, it wasn't – I mean, everybody says, no, 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 you don't do that. And and there was no precedent, right? We didn't – oh, we can be like them, you know? I mean, there, at that point, there weren't even like these brother director teams who, who made movies successfully, right? So, you know uh, – you know, I don't know how we, we were we were extremely in every respect, very complimentary. Right. I mean, to, to Graydon's point, I mean, we 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 were pals, but we are very different people and, and we all have blind spots and we pretty successfully uh, covered for each other's blind spots. And and we made each other laugh. Right. We made each other. We intrigued each other. We interested each other. It was it was a fun, you know, buddy comedy partnership. How'd you handle it if and when the two of you just had what might appear to be an irreconcilable difference? It just, we while we were doing the magazine, I literally can't remember any such thing. As we, when we're in the startup period, there were some moments when there were, you know, harsh words, you know, and, and like, oh, should we raise the money from this? But whatever. There, I don't even remember what they were, what the arguments were about, but there were some moments, tough moments. Right. And then when we were, you know, selling it, there was there were some inevitable differences of opinion about how that should go or whatnot. But for the you know for the five years we were doing it together, I don't know. We just we had through our fondness for each other and for what we were doing, we just we we got along almost without exception. That's really extraordinary. You two guys still close? We, we're still pals, you know, and we don't you know go into the office together every day. But yeah, I still talk to him and communicate with him regularly. Yeah. One of the things I find really interesting and remarkable about your career is not just the quality of what you've produced, but that you've produced creative work along a spectrum from books, got to be one of the most, I don't know, solo intensive creative projects imaginable, to a radio show, which is sort of in the middle of the spectrum, to magazines, which we've been talking about. I'm curious to hear kind of where your passions lie when it comes to actually doing the work for these different kinds of projects. You're right. They are very, I mean, magazines and, you know, everything but books in a certain way are highly collaborative enterprises. I love, I, doing Spy was just, was intense and scary and kind of, I, I just felt like I was attached to some giant generator all the time. It was just like, I it like, not that it aged me, but it was just like intense. And, and, and having this team of people to do it with, was such a delight, and and frankly, because I've never been a natural reporter, I, I don't, I, I have done it, I can do it, but like that eh, isn't really my happy place. But having ideas for some outrageous story that I can just then ask somebody else or order somebody else to do, that was my ideal. That was fantastic. Yeah, and and I like that at, at New York Magazine as well, where that I ran, and and so I I, I liked it. I think being a magazine editor, I had not been a magazine editor before. We started Spy, and, and then I did New York, and then I, I that was the end of that. I think 10 years of doing it, and a completely pleasurable 10 years of doing it, was about as much as I, I, I lucked out. Another way of the many that I've lucked out was that. It was like, yeah, I got I didn't have to you know work my way up. I, I, I got to run two magazines, and then I was done. And that was fantastic. And I, you know, I, I don't think I'm a great boss. I think I was an okay boss. I don't think I was a bad boss. 
But, you know, managing people is not my favorite thing in the world to do. Oh, my God. Tell you me know, about it. Hiring, firing, all that. So I just, you know, if you if you like the thing you're doing, that's, in my case, you put up with the managing of people. But uh, so so once, you know, once I got, once I said, no, now I'm the rest of my life. No, I didn't say the rest of my life. Now I'm going to write books and novels. I, I found at least, and maybe that was a function of being, you know, 44 when I started being a book writer, mainly, I found myself temperamentally highly suited sitting alone in a room all day and doing that. Maybe because I, I had gotten the 10 years of incredibly intense collegial teamwork out of my system or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. We'll be right back. I'm curious, indulge the uh, the print romantic in me for just a minute. What What is it about a magazine, the effect that magazines seem to have on people that makes them so distinctive in that regard? Yeah, it's funny you use the present tense. I guess that's still true. But, um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, a bunch of things. I mean, certainly now in the, in the digital age, the artifactual nature of them is lovely. But it was even before, it, when, when, it was, when that wasn't a big deal, because everything was physical. A well-made, well-made, and in some cases, creatively ambitious object of magazines, and we did try to be physically, creatively ambitious with fold-outs and maps and bind-in tattoos and all kinds of stuff. I think that is appealing. But I think moreover, and again, what is lost pretty much entirely in the digital format is the sense of here is an authored thing, this thing of this week or this month or this quarter or whatever that is all put together for some set of reasons and, and the mix is chosen and, and it's all made. It's, it's a thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a, a bit of stuff floating in a sea of the internet. It's this thing that the editors, for better or worse, successfully or not, have chosen to put together in this way right now. Now that sounds like, well, yeah, but that doesn't exist anymore yeah. in terms of, you know, and it can't exist in newspapers, even, I mean, physical or not. I mean, a newspaper has never been that because it's this daily thing. A magazine, again, weekly, fortnightly, monthly, whatever, was exactly that. It was, what should we put together this week or this month to do this thing and give it this cool poster, as I always thought of covers, on the cover. So I think in that sense, it, from a reader's point of view, consumer's point of view, it's it's something more like reading a book, right? It's it's oh, it's it's your that a book is a relationship. If it's a good book, it's this kind of intimate relationship with you and the author, and every word she or he chooses, or every sentence, and how they do it. Magazines have that in a way. I mean, again, individual pieces can be as brilliant as ever online as they were in magazines, but it's the collection of them to some larger purpose or expression of sensibility or whatever a given magazine is trying to do. So many people that I've grown up with, obviously magazine people, often look and about, you know, experience, particularly creating a magazine and say, you know, that was the best job I ever had. There's something about that level of intense collaboration yes. with an actual artifact at the end of the day, something tangible. You can hold it in your hand. Totally. Um, I, I found always that I and other editors and writers, whatever I knew, have different metabolisms, right? You can do a daily thing. You can do a quarterly thing. But like, you know, or you can do a weekly, you can do a monthly. But like, 
I knew from early on, after my one day as an employee of the New York Daily News, that like daily was not going to be my metabolism. You know, it just wasn't. And weeklies are exciting, but like a monthly back in the day when you didn't have the 24-7 gush of news on the internet and cable television, a monthly was possible in a way that, you know, basically as soon as, you know, not as soon as, but in the digital age, monthlies weren't the first to go necessarily, but they were the first to be rendered like, what? Why do we need a monthly magazine? I mean, there's still ways to do it and there's still good monthlies and they figure out ways to do it. But like before the internet, a monthly was an opportunity to, to do a certain kind of thing that, that just can't be done now. I mean, yes, The Atlantic does a brilliant job of being a monthly magazine, but it's all about the stuff they do every day. Do you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, there is, I mean, again, not to say, well, the, the you know, those times are gone forever, but they are. In addition to this more fundamental thing of, as we talked about, this authored object that the internet really just cannot provide. I remember from the time I was relatively young, when monthly magazines would arrive in my house and later when I was on my own in my apartment, when my favorite magazines arrived, it was an event. Completely. You know, you, you have a glass of wine, you go to your favorite chair, you sit down and you, you light up the gonna... cigarette if you're me, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, we yeah. wouldn't even go there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you sit there and you think, you know, I'm going to spend time with my with my friends. With my... Exactly. And, and, and again, if you're like me growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was even true of reading DC comics in Omaha from New York. It was a, like a connection to New York City, which is why as soon as I could, I moved there. You know, so yes, it was. It totally was. And and again, that loops back to this this feeling that I think both Graydon and I had when we when we decided to do this was like, we want that. We want that. How do we create that again for ourselves and for people who share our whatever taste? You guys started out kind of skewering uh, the Glitterati in New York, and then you became kind of celebrities yourselves, in a way, via Spy. Were there times when the two of you were together at an event or something, and you looked at each other and said, but not bad for kids from Canada and Nebraska? <laughs> in, the, in the biopic, yes, we did that. I don't know if we ever literally did that. I mean, th <laughs> we, we certainly had a sense of how fortunate we were and how great this was as it was going on. I know I did, and, and I'm, yes, we did not, uh, we thoroughly indulged our ability to be excited at the time. Yes, and, and you know, we knew at the time. I mean, Greg used to say to, you know, these poor youngsters that we paid so little to, like, you know, yeah, yeah, you're not paid very much, but this is, I guarantee you, this is going to be the best job you ever had. And many of them have subsequently said, now middle aged people, of course, uh, you know, you're right. That was the best job I ever had. So, yeah, we were totally like, we felt like, you know, we, we, we had grabbed a brass ring. Yeah. Did you ever think to yourself whether the fact that you were outsiders in a way was a competitive advantage? Yes, I, I would never call it a competitive advantage, but, but, <laughs> but absolutely, I think. Yeah. And we, maybe even, Yes, we, we talked about that and, and we're aware of that. And I think, you know, being yeah from Ottawa and Omaha and in the big city, we'd seen movies about and TV shows about and dreamed of. And also being able to see all the weird outsized stuff about life in the big city and the big cities that we could see with the fresh, you know, yokel, skeptical eye. I, I it was It was this combination of loving it and, you know, also seeing the absurdities of it. And, you know, I don't know, I guess pressing our nose against the glass and breaking the glass occasionally, you know, I mean, uh, something like that. But yeah, no, I think, I think the outsider is, is a big part of it. And I remember 
reading biographies of, of Harold Ross, the founder of The New Yorker. And of course, he was from the middle of nowhere as well. So uh, I think there is something to that. Yeah. A lot of people who enjoy even a modest level of celebrity find that it's really toxic. There's a lot of talk in the culture these days about celebrity culture being toxic, but I'm talking about it from a different point of view. I'm talking about it in terms of the effect on the celebrities themselves. And I've always wondered, as I've watched your career evolve and Graydon's, whether for, at least for you, the um, the way you kept your feet on the ground was the through the pursuit of interesting work. Yeah, and each of us has had a certain amount of whatever, notoriety, if not fame, but never, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think either of us have, I mean, we haven't turned it down, you know, but we haven't, like, look at what we've done and how we've lived our lives. That hasn't been the, the driver. We haven't amped it up. We haven't, we didn't fall for the modern American besetting sin of, you know, fame is everything and that's really all you want. And I can only speak for myself in, 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 in saying yes to what you just said, which is, you know, trying to be interested and stay interested and do good work. And yeah, and if you get paid well, or if you get, if, 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 if you, you know, get praise, great, all that's good. And in my case, I know if it allows you, as it has allowed me to do all these things that I had no natural credential or standing to do, like, oh, You've been you've been a magazine editor. You want to host a radio show? Like what? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, so and and you know, at that point, I was you know writing books as well. And one of my thoughts at the time was, well, I got this radio show. Everybody listens to public radio, buys books. Like that's a good thing for an author to do. So in that ways, it wasn't like you know I did have some consciousness of how to use the fact of of having some degree of public profile for my own benefit. But again, whatever, because of how we were raised or where we were raised, I don't know who we are. We, we have not spent our time, either of us, and certainly uh, being seekers of, of the limelight. Hey, Graydon especially. Graydon is, God knows, as editor of Vanity Fair. He could have. He, he was, if anything, the opposite of not seeking, trying to get interviews, trying to get photographed, all that stuff. Never at all. This is going to sound like a, I don't know, an offbeat question, but I'm, um, but there's a serious purpose behind it. So I want you to imagine that you're sitting and having lunch with uh, Laureen Powell Jobs. Okay. And, she's, um, and she says, she passes across the table a check, a very, very, very large check, and says, you can use this, but you can use this only to create a print magazine. Hmm. What would you do? I don't know. It's a good, it's a great question. And we'll have to go away for a day and come back if you want me to answer it with any seriousness. It's a great question. And I think I have never entertained that fantasy because I thought like my day editing magazines and, and the day of the print magazine is kind of done unless, you know, use some tiny little niche, you know, fine boat building or whatever. You know, if you had like a gazillion dollars to create a print magazine, I have a feeling I could come up with some, I, I, I can't say, here's what I do, because if I had that, then I'd go to Marine Jobs and say, hey, give me $100 million. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I. it's funny. Like one idea, the last serious idea that I had, or we had, Tibor Kalman and I back in 98 or something like that, was we wanted to buy Life magazine, which was a, a, a sort of existed, but barely at that time, and turn it into a modern turn of the century, 21st century pictorial weekly like like life magazine as it could be today so i don't know could that be done in 2022 i don't know but but i can imagine even though i i have said to myself to my wife to everybody 
Like, I'm done with jobs. I, I can imagine that offer <laughs> being, you know, appealing enough. If, if those were the only constraints, here's a gazillion dollars and it has to be a print magazine. I would spend a lot of time uh, thinking about that. I think it's an interesting way of exploring a question, which is, what is it that we as readers, as consumers, as a culture are missing as a result of obsolete magazine business models, yeah. sustainable business models? Yeah, it's a great question. And well, I think, you know, I got to the answer of what we're missing before in describing why people like liked and perhaps like print magazines is, you know, they are like a fine boat like or like a beautiful house or something that they, that there is no, nothing else like them because they are not quite a book and they are certainly not an internet magazine. They're something else. And it is that sense of craftsmanship and, 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 and a kind of coherence that can't be done any other way that I've seen. So it's a really interesting question. If, if you could just do it just to prove that it could be done and, and have beauty, usefulness, impact, all that, 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 that would be fun to figure out. Up next for Anderson is an hour-long Nixon at War special that'll be broadcast on public radio stations in mid-June to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. His two most recent books, Evil Geniuses and Fantasyland, both New York Times bestsellers, remain relevant and even timely. Find them at your favorite bookseller. And if you want a little bit more spy, Grab a copy of the beautifully designed by our friend Alexander Isley and richly detailed Spy the Funny Years, which contains over 300 pages of Spy's funniest and most creative work, along with the ultimate insider's account of how it all came to be. Follow Kurt on Twitter at KB Anderson or visit his website, KurtAnderson.com, for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co, or follow us on Instagram at printisdeadpod. Please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. Consider switching to digital with ReadyMag, the design tool that helps create websites without coding. ReadyMag's WYSIWYG attitude gives you full control over the result. Just drag whatever you want on the page, customize, and hit publish. Or take more time to fine-tune your project with advanced typography, complex animations, integrated analytics, draggable objects, shadows, custom cursors. The possibilities are endless. The first 50 new users to take promo code PRINTISDEAD get a 50% discount to ReadyMag's studio plan. Learn more at ReadyMag.com.